Good morning. Um, God's word is coming from the book of Mark today, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the scribes, and the entire council immediately held a consultation, and they bound Jesus and led him away and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, so you are the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. And the chief priest started accusing him of many things. But Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you offer nothing in answer? See how many charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing further in answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the Passover feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the one named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. And the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was sure and aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and asked him to release Barabbas for them instead. And responding again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, good morning. Everybody here and online, welcome. We're in the start of a new year. We're looking at the book of Mark. In reverse. That's a little unusual. In his first sermon, Todd noted that uh, he had become a little bit discouraged about his Tar Heels. And he's been recording games and watching them if they won. He noted that he was much calmer and enjoyed it much better when he knew the outcome. Well, as an NC State fan and a Chicago Cubs fan, I've been doing this for years. (laughs) So all I have to say is, welcome to the club. And I think it probably would have added years to my life in stress reduction uh, if I had done this earlier. And one of my dogs probably would have lived longer as well. She used to go hide when I was watching um, the wolf pack. But the point's well taken, knowing the end of the story changes how we experience the story. And I spoke briefly about that the last time I preached when I spoke as Jesus' prophet. We all want to know the future, how the story ends. But, and, and we prefer this prophetic foretelling to prophetic forthtelling. But I also noted that, ironically, we do actually know how the story ends. God wins. But we don't always live our lives today like we really believe that will be true in the future. So as we consider the trial of Jesus and what we might apply to our lives from this passage, we'll try to remember the end of the story. And after we go through with the passage today, I want us to consider... Who really killed Jesus? 
And I also want us to consider that we should not be surprised if we suffer unjust trials. Now, although we want to keep in mind the end of the story as we consider the trial of Jesus that we're looking at today, we would be somewhat remiss if we didn't include some of what precedes the story as well. So we're in Mark 15 today. In Mark 14, starting in verse 10, there's the account of the Last Supper. Todd's going to preach on that next week. Between the Last Supper and the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, we have the accounts of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then his capture there in the midst of the darkness. And that same night, there was a gathering of the council. This is called the Sanhedrin. And that was the supreme judicial council of the Judaism of the day. And it was composed of the high priests, the elders, and the scribes. And they finally had Jesus in their grasp. The intent of that gathering is actually found in the previous chapter, Mark 14, verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Finally, just before chapter 15, we read the poignant story of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. In our first verse today, the council is said to be holding a consultation. Now, whether this was a separate meeting from what happened in the nighttime gathering was simply the final stages of that meeting and exactly clear. And frankly, all the synoptic gospel accounts are a little bit muddled about this, undoubtedly due to the chaos of this whole situation that they're trying to report. But crucially, ultimately, the Jewish leaders take him to Pontius Pilate, to Pilate, the Roman prefect or governor of Judea. Now, none of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us why. But we're told in John 18 that after hearing of their accusations, verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, there's actually some debate about that, right? Whether the Sanhedrin could actually put someone to death. Recall in Acts 7 that Stephen was martyred. He was stoned to death after his testimony before the Sanhedrin. The Romans were not involved at all. So if the Sanhedrin could have executed Jesus and he was in their grasp, why would they take him to Pilate? Well, recall that several times in the Gospels, the chief priests, elders, and scribes wring their hands and complain to one another. They're wondering what they should do with Jesus. They want him dead. But they fear the people who thought he was at least a prophet, if not a king, if not the Messiah. But if they can take Jesus to Pilate and have him convicted and executed on a political charge, that changes the playing field. Then they can blame Rome when the people complain to them. And indeed, it looks like from verse 2 today that it is a political charge because Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And in verses 3 and 4, it's clear that more accusations are coming from the mouths of the chief priests. What might those be? Well, we don't find that out in Mark, but in Luke, he's more specific. And they began to accuse him, Luke 23, uh, verse 2, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In other words, the Sanhedrin is accusing Jesus of sedition, inciting rebellion against the authority of Rome. Again, this is a political charge. And they, know that they do this because they know that the punishment for rebellion against Rome is death, and it's death by crucifixion. Remarkably, in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer 
So Pilate was amazed. Now, really, the trial before Pilate is over. Okay, and I was telling, I was, uh, I was telling some people before we, we got started today that I really messed up uh, a little bit. Um, thank goodness Haven sends out an email um, beforehand because I thought that was the end of what I was supposed to preach on today, okay? Because it's the trial and it's over, okay? Um, but uh, fortunately, I found out in time that I got to talk a little bit about the rest of the verses. So here we go. All right. Uh, so that was a little embarrassing. Um, the trial is over now, but Pilate's in a pickle, isn't he? He's, he's like, what do I do? The Jewish leaders are accusing him of rebellion, of Jesus of rebellion, claiming that he is a king that they don't want, and Pilate can, can find nothing worthy of execution. Verse 10, for he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate wants to release him, but the gospel of John shows us how cunning the Jewish leaders are. John 19, verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes him out to be a king opposes Caesar. And the people stirred up and joined by the chief priests are demanding Jesus' crucifixion. And so the passage concludes, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate releases Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, what is it that we can take from this passage today? So first, I want to ask an interesting question that might not look like it actually applies to us. Who killed Jesus? Who's responsible for his death? As we unpack the text today, we saw that the Sanhedrin worked very hard to make this charge against Jesus a political charge and not a religious charge. As we've noted, if the Jewish leaders had taken Jesus to Pilate and offered only a religious charge, then that would have gone nowhere. As we read in a minute ago, Pilate told him to judge him according to their law. But they worked very hard to make it a political charge, and they seem to have been successful because he's ultimately executed in the way that Rome executes its rebels, crucifixion. So one might conclude that the members of the Sanhedrin were the ones who killed Jesus. They brought the false charges against him, Jesus never claimed to be the earthly king of the Jews. He told Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. And for centuries, there's been enmity between Christians and Jews because of the accusation that it was the Jews who killed Jesus. Now, trust me, I'm not trying to foster that enmity. I think really a better case could be made against Pilate. He recognized that the charges were a sham. We've already seen that, uh, that in our passage today, he knew they were operating out of envy. And if we look at the historical extra-biblical accounts of Pilate found in the writings of the Jewish historians Josephus and Philo, what we see is that Pilate really had little regard for Jewish religious sensitivities. Those historians record events in, one, which, could, in which one could easily conclude that Pilate could care less what the Jews thought. But Pilate couldn't control the crowd. So he tried to exonerate himself from the whole proceedings from Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. So, Pilate knew it was a sham. He knew they were operating out of envy. He feared, they, they feared losing their exalted positions in society and in the temple. He really didn't care what they thought, but a riot was starting, and so he washed his hands of the whole affair. 
Simply put, it was under his authority that Jesus was killed, and he knew it was wrong. One might conclude that it was Pilate who killed Jesus. But let's go deeper, and let's look outside the passages about the trial of Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is with the other disciples, and the Spirit comes upon them, and they suddenly start speaking in languages that they don't know. Acts 2. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. You know the story. The disciples were accused of being drunk. Although I have to say, I don't usually find that drunk people speak in a coherent foreign language. I think they usually speak in an incoherent native language, at least the ones I've experienced. Not that I've experienced that, of course. In any event, Peter stands and gives the first sermon, and he says a most amazing thing. Acts 2, uh, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter's saying that God killed Jesus. Now, this has been an offensive idea to non-believers for years. I've even read that some who don't understand what happened in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus think that his trial, conviction, and murder were manifestations of some type of cosmic child abuse. They say no father, that would be God the Father, would kill his own son, that would be God the Son or Jesus, regardless of the benefit for and to others. And offensive or not, one could say that it was God the Father who killed Jesus. But let's go even further. If we know that God is in control of all things, and if we accept Peter's verdict, which we must, that Jesus was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, then we must ask why. Why would God the Father predetermine the death of his own son? And of course, it is because of human sin, our sin. It's not popular these days to talk about sin. After all, for something to be a sin, it must be wrong. And for it to be wrong, there must be standard of right. And if there is some standard of right, there must be someone outside of ourselves who tell us what that standard is. If we could always choose the standard of right, then we can avoid this idea of sin simply by changing what is declared to be right or wrong. And we do see that happening today, don't we? I'm going to talk some more about that in a minute. But deep in our hearts, and I suspect in the hearts of many who profess otherwise, we know that there is a right standard, a right way to live, a moral code that does not come from within our own broken, deceived, and deceptive hearts. And if that moral code, which exists in every human, comes from God, then the ones who caused the murder of Jesus were not the Jews, it was not Pilate, it was not even God, it was us. Because if God is just, which he is, and if he wants to be in relationship with his created order, which remarkably, miraculously, he does, then the only way for him to be in relationship with us is for someone to pay the price for our sins so that we can stand sinless before him. This is God, in the words of Paul in Romans 3, being both just and justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. And knowing the end of the story, the resurrection changes everything. If Jesus died at the hands of the Jews with the ascent of Pilate and by the plan of God, and that was it, and that that was just it, and there was nothing more than that was an unjust trial and the charge of cosmic child abuse could hold some water. But Jesus' death is followed by his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven to once again be in glory with God the Father and God the Spirit in perfect unity and fellowship. And because of his death and resurrection, we who killed Jesus, we who killed Jesus are forgiven and can look forward to that day when we are resurrected to be in glory with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But before that glorious day dawns, we, like Jesus, might suffer unjustly. And that's my second point. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think Christians living in the southern part of the United States have unjustly suffered very much in the last hundred years. Our black brothers and sisters, as well as other non-white racial groups of believers, they've suffered from racial inequality, often horribly slow. And I'm not trying to minimize this by saying it. But I don't really think any group of believers have suffered very much in the South because of their beliefs. Plenty of believers in the world have suffered greatly for their beliefs in the past and in our lifetimes. But again, we haven't suffered very much. But that's likely to change over the next hundred years. And I want to explore for a moment why it might happen and how it might look. For Christians in America over the next decades, the biggest threat that may cause us to unjustly suffer may come, ironically, through the emphasis that many lay on the idea of tolerance, namely what D.A. Carson in his book calls the new tolerance. His book is called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and he calls this the new tolerance. Now, for centuries, believers have been taught to be tolerant, and that teaching is based on the clear teaching of Scripture. And let us be clear, there have been atrocious, horrible failures by the church in this idea of tolerance. So I'm not excusing those, but tolerance is taught by none other than Jesus. He tells us in Matthew 5, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. True tolerance means that within the community of believers, all are equal. And inside and outside the church, we are to love our enemies. That's what tolerance is. But at the same time, believers are instructed to share the good news of the gospel with others. Jesus commissions his followers in Matthew 28. He came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Romans, where Paul once again reiterates the equality of all believers, says in Romans 10, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So the old tolerance, Carson notes, was based on respecting real, hard differences between people and what they think is true about the world and the universe. But it was more than that, for the old tolerance and the teaching of Scripture required that we take a stand among these competing truth and ethical claims that swirl about us and that we proclaim the good news of Jesus. The result of this is that we disagree with a Muslim, we disagree with a Hindu, we disagree with a Buddhist or a secularist about the nature of the world, the work of the triune God and how salvation comes through Jesus, but we are to be tolerant in letting them believe what they want to believe, even while we tell them we think they are mistaken. That is tolerance. But that's not what the new tolerance is. The new tolerance says that you not only have to be tolerant, in the old sense, of those who have differing claims about truth, but you are intolerant if you tell them you think they are wrong. And increasingly, that type of intolerance is being vilified by the world around us. Carson's notes, the new tolerance has come to mean a dogmatic abdication of truth claims and a moralistic adherence to moral relativism, departure from either of which is stigmatized as intolerance. I love that statement. A dogma is a truth. So dogmatic abdication of truth claims means that the new tolerance says that the, that says that the truth is, is that there is no truth. I talked about that last time, didn't I? But the new tolerance goes further than truth claims and adds moral relativism. I said a few minutes ago that it's not popular to talk about sin, and this is the reason. If there is no truth and no truth giver, then there is nothing outside ourselves telling us how we, are sh- how we should live and what is right or wrong. And if there's nothing outside ourselves telling us how we should live, then we can do whatever we please, and there's no such thing as sin. And there are at least two important consequences of that. If you tell someone that you think that maybe they're living in a way that's wrong or they're doing something wrong and sinful, then they're likely to tell you to quit judging them. Remember, there's nothing outside of themselves that can tell them they're right or wrong. And then, ironically, they may tell you that you are actually the one guilty of sin, the sin of intolerance. The second important consequence is that our culture or the state may tell us something is wrong, like stealing or murder, But there's nothing that is really telling the culture of the state what is right or wrong. So ideas of what is right or wrong, permissible or not permissible, are likely to change over time. And they have. And they will. Now, you may be thinking, what does all this talk about old and new intolerance to do with suffering unjustly? Well, I want to go back to Todd's sermon last week. You might have noticed I didn't talk about it at the beginning of the sermon like I usually do. But I had never thought about it before. When thinking of the crucifixion, I've tended to dwell on the horrific physical suffering and dying of Jesus, and it was horrific. But I never really thought about the profound suffering that mocking and humiliation would have added to Jesus as he physically suffered. Todd was right, wasn't he? Verbal assaults and abuse can be and are often worse than physical abuse. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the horrors for some of you who have gone through physical abuse, 
But the reality is that the accompanying uh, verbal and psychological abuse that accompanies that physical abuse often does and continues to do the worst damage. And many, many people have suffered verbal abuse, verbal assaults without physical abuse, and that continues to plague them. As Todd noted, verbal abuse with or without physical abuse leaves rejection, pain, and shame. In a word, suffering. What does the world's new tolerance mean for the followers of Jesus? It will likely mean, and in many areas of the world and in the Western world already, it already means mocking, humiliation, rejection, and shaming for believing and espousing faith in Jesus. Unjust suffering. And if you haven't experienced it, then I bet you've read about it. People being mocked and humiliated publicly or on social media as being intolerant for their Christian beliefs, for speaking out against things that the Bible says is wrong, for going to church, for being part of the believing community. People have lost their jobs over being intolerant. Believers now are suffering unjustly due to the societal acceptance of this new tolerance. We haven't seen people go to jail yet. They're not on judicial trial yet. But there are laws in the land being put in place that could lead to that. So this is going to get worse, not better. And as Jesus was put on trial and suffered unjustly, so those who follow him are even now being unjustly tried in the court of public opinion. And they are suffering verbal abuse, shame, and humiliation. And it is not really far-fetched to think that in the next decades, the trials will go beyond public opinion and into the judicial arena. And the suffering could become monetary fines or even imprisonment. Now, let me be perfectly clear here. I am not in any way supporting any political cause. You may think that one side is better than the other. It's friendly or more tolerant of believers. But don't be fooled. Do not be fooled. Because both sides are liberal and conservative. As they move toward their worst selves are threats to biblical Christianity. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. Your deliverance is not by a political party. But the resurrection changes everything. Though the new tolerance seems to be an unbridled ascendancy and though, and though believers can expect to suffer because of that, the resurrection tells us the end of the story. God will win. We will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And as Todd said last week, the risen Jesus understands the pain and suffering that we will unjustly experience in this life and moves toward us with compassion now to comfort and console us. The trial of Jesus was a mockery of justice. For that, the blame can be laid practically on the Jewish leaders and on, the, and on Pilate, but really the blame is on us and our sin. But through that unjust trial and Jesus' execution and ultimately through his resurrection, God's plan to be both just and justifier of those who follow Jesus came to fruition. Truth is truth. Sin is sin. Forgiveness is possible through Jesus. Redemption and reconciliation with God comes to those who call on Jesus' name. These truths will sustain us as we move into the future, which may include more suffering than we have previously known. 
And that can be a bit scary. But don't despair. As Carson writes in his closing paragraph, delight in God, trust in him. God remains sovereign, wise, and good. Our ultimate confidence is not in any government or party, still less in our ability to mold the culture in which we live. God may bring about changes that reflect the more robust understanding of tolerance better known in earlier times, and that would be very helpful. Alternatively, he may send a powerful delusion so that many people will believe the lie. And in consequence, we may enter into more suffering for Jesus than the West has known for quite some time. That would have the effect of aligning us with brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world. Enable us to share something of the apostles' joy. The resurrection changes everything. Delight and trust in God. Amen.